This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, simply the best podcast out there. Let's kick this thing off. Jameson Lopp is a co-founder of Casa. He's one of the most well-known technical minds in Bitcoin and has quickly become an expert on personal privacy. In this conversation, Jameson and I discuss the Bitcoin halving, personal privacy, individual sovereignty, risk to Bitcoin's adoption, hash rate in China, and what would change Jameson's mind about Bitcoin. I really enjoyed this conversation, and it was extra special to talk to Jameson on the day of the third Bitcoin halving. Before we get into the episode, though, I want to quickly talk about our sponsors. The first is BlockFi. BlockFi basically has three products. You can deposit crypto and get a US dollar loan. You can take out an interest-bearing account for your crypto deposits, or you can buy and sell cryptocurrencies on their crypto exchange. What's really interesting about them is they've got this interest-bearing account where you can earn up to 8.6% APY on crypto deposits. Today, you can earn 6% on Bitcoin and 8.6% on a stablecoin like GUSD or USDC. I'm a huge fan of BlockFi. I've got money deposited there. I'm a user, an investor, and they're obviously a sponsor of the podcast. I think what they're building is a ton of wealth services for people who want to operate in the alternative financial system. Go check them out at BlockFi.com slash POMP. Again, BlockFi.com slash POMP. I think companies like BlockFi that are building all of the infrastructure around these assets are incredibly important, and BlockFi is leading the charge. Go check them out, BlockFi.com slash POMP. Also, don't forget, I write a daily letter to over 50,000 investors about business technology and finance. I break down complex topics into easy-to-understand language while sharing opinions on various aspects of each industry. You can subscribe at pompletter.com or go click the link in the description. All right, let's get into this episode with Jameson. I hope you guys enjoy it. Anthony Pompliano is a partner at Morgan Creek Digital. All opinions expressed by Pomp or his guests on this podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Morgan Creek Digital or Morgan Creek Capital Management. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys, bang, bang, super excited. Uh, I have Jameson Lop here to celebrate the Bitcoin halving, the third halving, uh, the historic moment calls for none other than, uh, than uh, one of my favorite people in Bitcoin and, uh, and an OG in his own right. So thanks for doing this, man. Happy halving day. Yeah, exactly. Uh, for those that don't know you, let's just start with uh, your background and, and kind of what you did before you got into Bitcoin, and then we'll get into those early days. Yeah, I'm a computer scientist by trade. I spent the first decade of my career actually working for an online marketing company doing large-scale cloud computing data analytics and actually stripping people's privacy away, basically the antithesis of what I try to promote these days. So, you know, that provided some interesting technical challenges, but I was never really that interested in the business. And it just happened to come across the Bitcoin white paper a number of years ago. And once I read it, I realized it was really fascinating from a computer science standpoint, from an economic standpoint, and uh, just the idea of money as an open collaborative project was very interesting to me. So started doing some side projects in the Bitcoin space. And after a couple of years, 
realize there was enough VC money that I could just get paid to continue working on Bitcoin full time. So I've been doing Bitcoin security for five years now, um, both at an enterprise setting with BitGo and for the past couple of years uh, for individuals at Casa. Yeah. And so I guess uh, let's go back to the first time you read the Bitcoin white paper. Like, how did you come across it? And what was your initial thought? Were you just immediately like, hey, this is the future? Or were you skeptical? How, how did that go down? No, uh, you know, there's a longer story there. And it, it, it's the same thing that we hear with a lot of people is I'll never actually remember the first time I heard about Bitcoin because I dismissed it three or four times before I actually read about it and realized what an innovative new solution this was. Because really, I had never thought about money before. I'd never thought about who controls these systems. And um, it wasn't until probably the third or fourth time, I think it was a Slashdot article, that I finally clicked on that link. I finally read the white paper. And it was only like eight or nine pages. It's, it's not as difficult a technical read as most white papers are. So I would definitely recommend everyone read it. But when I read that, I realized, you know, this was solving a problem that I had never even thought about before. And it was just really interesting. I felt like this had the potential to be revolutionary. Though, of course, this was the very early days, there was a lot of work that needed to be done. And so that was just the beginning of my journey. And we're still in the early days, and there's still a lot of work to be done. For sure. And, and then um, what kind of gave you the confidence, right? There, there's a lot of people who will, uh, they'll read the white paper, or they'll talk to a friend and it's like, hey, this is interesting, uh, but it's super speculative. And maybe I want to, uh, you know, take kind of 1% of all the money that I have and, and I'll see what it's about and put a little money in. Uh, you, me, many others have, uh, I, I think, become much larger believers in that and, and uh, made kind of a bigger financial bet uh, on that actually being the future. What gave you the confidence of that in the early days? Uh, and then kind of how did you think about moving from a fiat denominated uh, majority world to uh, a Bitcoin world? Yeah, I mean, it was a long process. You know, when I first got into it, I only put a little bit of money in just because I figured I need to actually have some in order to play with it in order to better understand how it works. It wasn't until two or three years later, after I had multiple projects and I had been using it on a regular basis, that I actually decided that this was something that even though it was risky, I actually wanted to make a large financial commitment. And that's when I went to the trouble of figuring out how to turn my retirement money into a self-directed IRA so that I could hold you know, real Bitcoin in a tax-advantaged account. And you know that ended up it was, it was a crazy idea at the time, you know, this was like right after the Mt. Gox crash and everybody was telling me how insane I was and it ended up being a good financial bet. But really, my understanding of the system has continued to evolve every year, you know, as new things happen. And every new thing that happens, every event that Bitcoin overcomes just strengthens my belief in the resilience of the system. And ultimately, it's less about the technical aspects and more about the, the human underpinning of all of the people like myself who we're just frankly not going to give up on this. We're not going to let it die. And that's kind of the mantra that I've come to believe is that, you know, Bitcoin can't fail unless there is a consensus amongst all of us to allow it to fail. 
Yeah, it, it's um, it, it's this nuanced version. I think a lot of people, when they see a product or service, uh, they evaluate the technical merits, they evaluate the cash flow, kind of all you, everything you would do with a traditional product. Uh, money in general is very different, uh, and it goes back to this idea that money is a belief system. Right. I don't care what the technological underpinning is, whether it's the U.S. dollar or any other currency in the world, it is ultimately a belief system. And when you get that belief, the only way to have that money fail is when people stop believing. Right. And we see that in the fiat world all the time where hyperinflation kind of breaks the belief of people that it's a store of value and, and it fails. It sounds like you're saying the same thing here. It's just with a digital currency um, called Bitcoin rather than any other currency in the world. Yeah, and it's great though the um, the having event that's happening today. Um, while I don't believe that in and of itself this is a major uh, economic or financial uh, catalyst, what it is is evidence that the rules of the network of the protocol are known by everyone, cannot be manipulated by anyone, and will continue to be predictable and provide a robust foundation that we can build other things on top of. Yeah. Now, you have, a, uh, I think, a number of nuanced views um, around Bitcoin, around privacy, and, and kind of the digital world. Uh, some of that, my understanding, is just uh, ethos driven, right? You like, you just believe these things. Uh, some of it though comes from personal experience. Um, one of those things is uh, the now infamous swatting uh, story. Maybe just kind of for those that don't know that story, quickly tell what happened there. And then we can get into some of the things that you've done uh, in your life and, and lifestyle to change and, and kind of prevent yourself uh, from this weird digital world that, uh, that's coming. Yeah, you know, one of the more insane things about this space is how quickly it grows and how a dynamic it is, how how many things change, uh, both from a security perspective and a just sort of uh, day to day, um, I guess, level of interest and um, people who are paying attention to you. And it was really, it was the attention uh, and it was the the mania of the 2017 hype that drastically changed my life. Not really so much from the monetary standpoint, but more of just going from being some nobody software coder who randomly blathers about libertarian stuff and cryptocurrency on Twitter to a guy who has, you know, six figures of followers on Twitter. And that is really no different from what happens to people who become overnight, like viral sensations or win the lottery or whatever. It's just that your, your threat profile can change so quickly in this space. And that may be because you're outspoken on social media and have a viral effect there. It may be because um, you know your wealth goes 10x or 50x overnight and people knew about that because you had been talking about it. And so all of a sudden, um, I start getting attacked in ways that I haven't before. And, and the thing about the swatting, it only takes one person who knows how to make an anonymous phone call and do some simple uh, online searches to find your physical location to basically target you and send, you know, nation state level attackers to your door uh, who are ready to commit violence. 
And, and so that's what happened to me. Um, I, I basically caught the attention of the wrong person and they decided that I had been in Bitcoin for a while and I could probably be extorted for Bitcoin and that if they started attacking me in different ways that they could uh, scare me enough to try to buy them off. And that didn't quite work. In fact, I, the, they were extorting me for about $50,000 and I, I ended up spending about that much to completely burn down my life and start it all over again from a privacy perspective. So it was definitely a learning experience. I've written a lot about it and I've discovered how difficult it really is to live on the edge of extreme privacy. And the odd thing is that at least in America, this is feasible if you have the time and money, but in many other countries, uh, it's just not legally possible to protect yourself in the way that you can with various like legal entities in the United States. Yeah. And, and, you know, when you first told me the swatting story, I think part of what was so scary about it is uh, when you put yourself in the perspective of the police, right? When, when they're actually showing up, uh, they have no clue what's going on. They have no context. All they know is they got this anonymous call. Uh, there's a dangerous situation. And uh, you actually weren't home, if I remember correctly. And so you right. kind of showed up and was like, hey, what's going on? <laughs> which, which, you know, I'm sure confused them just as much as, uh, as them already kind of being in this heightened state of panic. Uh, and, and so ultimately just scary, right? Yeah, that was the only thing that went right was that um, – whenever I make like public comments about things that might somehow be tied to my location, I usually do so in a delayed fashion. And so my best guess is that that morning I got up, I went to the gym and when I was at the gym, I made a tweet about waking up and having to deal with stuff with the current drama on Twitter. And it was within 30 minutes of that tweet that the SWAT team showed up at my house as I was trying to come back into my neighborhood. So I couldn't get into my own neighborhood because they had cordoned it all off. And it took a few minutes uh, to figure out that they were looking for me. I was the armed assailant that they were trying to track down. So uh, I was lucky that you know my local police department had done enough research that they realized that the... Uh, phone call was not coming from my house or even from my state. So they, they somewhat knew that it was possibly a uh, fake, but of course, like you said, they have to treat every situation like it's life or death. And that is one of the crazy things about this asymmetric attack where someone can spend a few dollars to make an anonymous phone call and get $100,000 worth of taxpayer resources uh, pointed at an arbitrary target. That's just the crazy thing about this space in general is uh, how asymmetric some of the attacks and defenses are, but I'm also very bullish on it because I believe with the technology applying it correctly, we can actually give people a level of security that they wouldn't ever be able to afford before for their assets. Yeah, and so obviously that event was uh, was pretty material, and, and uh, you know, one just a scary experience, but two, it puts you on this path to uh, completely you know, change your life and the way that you interacted um, both digitally and then also with various assets or, or communication. Maybe talk a little bit about kind of what that path's been like uh, and then describe like what your life looks like now compared to then. Yeah, so I basically had to figure out, you know, what are all of the different trails of data that you leave laying around as you're going about your normal life, setting up various accounts and services, uh, buying things. 
And essentially I had to figure out how do I plug all of these data leaks? Because this is the particularly challenging thing about pr privacy is, you know, keeping the data from getting to people that you don't want it to. And so essentially I had to figure out how to create shields, how to create proxies. And I did this in a variety of different ways. I created technical proxies, you know, VPNs and Tor for all of my internet traffic. I created legal proxies through attorneys, through trusts, through uh, anonymous LLCs that did not have my name listed on them as the owner. Um, and then I use proxies for a number of different things like uh, receiving and, and sending physical goods. You know, I have other mailboxes set up around the country to receive physical mail. Um, and whenever possible, uh, use third party uh, people, you know, hired proxies, uh, to avoid having to do any sort of like face-to-face -face interaction with people who would otherwise potentially ask for my real identity. So it's, it makes your life a lot complicated, that's for sure. It, and it's not, it's not free uh, from either a time or a money perspective. You, uh, if I remember correctly, hired like a private investigator to basically uh, double check your work, if you will. What yeah. was that like? Yeah. Uh, First of all, it took me a while to find uh, what I was looking for. You know, normally you hire PIs to go after other people who owe you money or somehow harmed you. Uh, and so it, it was pretty rare, uh, you know, to ask someone to find yourself. Uh, but it, it worked out pretty well. And it allowed me to find uh, a couple of leaks, which, you know, resulted in me taking more drastic action. Uh, the most drastic actually being around my driver license and having to set up another um, sort of decoy residence. Uh, and really like the DMV is one of the most aggressive institutions in America when it comes to like verifying your information. So uh, in order to make sure that my real regular home address didn't show up anywhere, I had to make sure I had a, a decoy somewhere else that is a real place. Uh, and of course, it's not cheap to do that. Yeah, I feel like um, when you get deeper and deeper down this rabbit hole, the more you realize uh, there's a trade-off between privacy and convenience. After everything you went through, um, is that the biggest hurdle for other people to do this, just the convenience and, and kind of the capital needed? Uh, or is it a, a, a knowledge gap? Like, like, why doesn't everyone go do this? Yeah, so it adds friction to many points of your daily life to do this. Um, before I did it, it, there wasn't even really a great singular resource that covered all the different aspects of your life. As of today, uh, about a year after I went through all this, this uh, an anonymous privacy expert called Michael Basil came out with a book called, uh, I think the ultimate guide to privacy. It's on Amazon. Highly recommend it has everything that I did and more. Uh, so it's certainly possible, but once again, that's like a three or 400 page book uh, with a lot of step-by-step -step instructions uh, for what you need to go through. Now, the initial onboarding part, if you're, first of all, you have to be willing to pretty much completely burn down your life, sever all ties with your current physical addresses and start over again. And so you'll easily spend several months doing that. 
but once you get through that, I would say the ongoing maintenance is not nearly as bad. And where do you feel like the greatest friction is on a day-to-day basis? Is it receiving mail? Is it not going to see people in person? Like, like wh- where is that uh, obstacle? Yeah, I mean, it, it comes down to how far you really want to take it. So for me, I moved to a different location where no one knew who I was, and I actually created an alias. So no one around here knows my real name. No one knows what I do. Um, I, I, that's mainly because I wanted to push it to the extreme just to see if it would work, you know, see if I would be able to, to hide myself in that way. But there are different levels of this, right? You don't need to go to the extreme that I did. I think that most people would be far better off if they simply do uh, a weekend of improving their technical privacy and figuring out how to set up ad blockers and uh, VPNs and just uh, obscuring their day-to-day web traffic. Yeah, now this brings us to the question of uh, privacy and kind of sovereignty uh, around Bitcoin. Uh, you are probably one of the biggest uh, proponents of this, mostly because of the other things that you've done in your life. Uh, let's just start from a high level. Like, what does it mean to have financial privacy uh, and mean to have financial sovereignty? Yeah, they kind of go hand in hand. Um, you know, if you want to be sovereign, you want to be able to make payments, uh, send money without having to ask permission, then that means you can't have any middlemen that are sitting in there watching everything that you do and, and then potentially blocking what you're doing. The privacy aspect, I mean, privacy and security are both, both very complicated things to quantify uh, because there's a million different variables and you have to usually start at the beginning and say, well, what is your threat model? What are you trying to protect yourself against? Because that's how you then decide what precautions you really need to take. Um, the, the big problem you know, with the communication age and where we are today with the internet is that people on a regular basis pretty much every day are sending their personal and in many cases, private financial information to a number of different third parties. And so over time, that just keeps building up and building up. And each time you give sensitive information to a third party, you're hoping and trusting that they will keep that secure. So over years and years that you've interacted with thousands or tens of thousands of different third parties, then the likelihood that one of them is going to get hacked is going to leak that information basically, you know, approaches one, 100%. And so that is why that's the hard part is preventing that information from leaking in the first place. And why I've gone to the extreme of having, you know, proxy fake information that I give to all of these third parties instead. And you know, you don't have to go to the extreme of setting up all these different legal entities. There are services out there like privacy.com where you can create unique throwaway debit cards that give you an extra layer of shielding between your regular bank account and uh, the merchants, for example. But, you know, these are all things that are covered in the, the resources. Yeah. And so I guess as part of this, um, when people hear you say fake information, how much of this is uh, hard to do, but legal versus uh, not legal, 
but worth the privacy, right? And, and legal, really what I'm trying to get at is to have you clarify um, how much of this can be done uh, by a regular individual who's not worried about uh, or who has no desire to even come close to kind of skirting the law, if you will, versus sure. like, hey, I literally just put a fake address on, you know, a piece of, uh, on a document. And uh, if they ever found out, then I would get in trouble. Yeah, you know, this is probably one of the most unnerving aspects of it is, is you know, people are generally, they want to be honest, uh, they don't want to get in trouble for lying. And I think that it's actually covered pretty well in the privacy book that I mentioned, where at least in America, and you know, I'm not a lawyer, so don't uh, you know, check with your own attorney. Again, I've spent a lot of time and money on attorneys myself with all of this. Um, at least in America, if you're not signing a legal contract or a legal document, or you're not engaging in some sort of activity with a like, government agency, then you can absolutely lie about your name and your identity. Like it's not a crime to give a false name or information unless it's to, you know, certain official authorities or, you know, something in the legal sense, but to a merchant, it is completely valid to give a, a fake name uh, and an address that may not even exist. And in some cases, uh, if you get to the extreme of all of this and you think you've, um, improved your privacy sufficiently, then like the final step is actually disinformation. It's actually putting your real name and many fake addresses out into the internet and hoping that they get sucked up by all of these uh, information engines to then create a smoke screen that makes it almost impossible for someone to figure out you know, what is the real information. Uh, the alias that you're using, uh, don't tell me what it is, obviously. <laughs> Uh, but I would love to know, is it a ridiculous name or is it a very common name? And, and the reason being, uh, I've got to imagine that you're having some fun with some of this and, uh, and there's this element of, uh, there, it's serious, but also, uh, there's a little bit of a game aspect to it too, right? Yeah, no, uh, no, very common. And, and that's another thing about, you know, aliases is you want to pick one that, uh, will not create any suspicion and needs to be common based upon your local area and customs and culture and your own background. So no, uh, no McLovin uh, type <laughs> name. <laughs> nope. Um, all right, let's get into uh, the custody. So obviously, um, maybe talk a little bit just about uh, not your keys, not your coin, um, what that means to you. Uh, and then we can get into what you guys are doing at Costler. Yeah, so you know, Bitcoin is an asset of a form that we've never really seen before. It has properties of many different assets. You could say it's some sort of hybrid of all of these things, but it definitely seems to be unique in the specific set of properties that it has. Now, one of those properties is that it is a, it is a custody-like asset. It's a hard asset that you yourself can control, similar to physical things like gold, precious metals, diamonds, what have you. Um, it happens to also have these other asset, um, attributes that are mainly because it has you know, digital uh, properties. So, you know, you can send it, for example, over the internet at practically the speed of light. But the ownership asset is a very important attribute for people to understand because of the way that 
all these other digital online accounts work today. Most people are, they're used to just going to their bank or PayPal or some other third party financial service and logging in and doing whatever they need there and, and it's done. But if you're, for example, going to an exchange or some other uh, provider that is a like Bitcoin service and you're just logging in and instructing them to do things, then what you've done is you've entered into a bank-like relationship where you're not actually directly controlling that money. You're not actually controlling that Bitcoin. You're instructing a third party who actually controls it to please do these things on your behalf. So essentially you don't own Bitcoin from a control standpoint. You own IOUs to Bitcoin that someone else actually controls. And I think it's important for people to understand this distinction because of the way that the system itself operates. You know, we've created financial infrastructure uh, over the past hundred years that has resulted in a fairly small number of large institutions essentially controlling everything. We've got these intermediaries that are, are watching all of our transactions and, you know, they're doing it for our own good, right? So they're, they're trying to protect us from fraud. They're trying to uh, protect uh, illegal activity from happening to people. Um, but ultimately, it's a double-edged sword is that they may also end up harming people by blocking various transactions that are not actually causing harm. And, you know, this is where you get into legal gray areas, for example, around uh, like the sex industry or the legal cannabis industry, et cetera, et cetera. There's plenty of other uh, examples, but one of the biggest features of Bitcoin is censorship resistance. It is the removal of intermediaries who can block you um, there's a, a famous quote, I think it's generally that Bitcoin is for the payments that they don't want you to make. And, you know, this is, I think, in the history of Bitcoin, the first thing that really proved its censorship resistance was the rise of Silk Road and Darknet markets. And while that is, as of today, a very small fraction of the you know, crypto economy, they still continue to exist. And you can't stop people from making these payments regardless of whether or not a government agrees with it or not. And so if we want Bitcoin to really fulfill that promise, if we want people to be able to reduce the power of what these intermediaries can do, then we need to take the power away from them and you know pull it into the hands of the individuals. And so, I, that's why I want to continue to see more people, you know, remove their coins from exchanges and, and hold their own private keys. But, you know, this, it, it makes a lot of people nervous because they've never done anything like it before. There's a million different pitfalls of ways that people can screw up and potentially lose their money. And so this is why for the past five years, I've I've continued to be focused on the same boring old thing, which is just private key management as this fundamental usability layer that I think we need to continue working on in the space. And it's what led me to found CASA a couple of years ago. And I think we've done a, a great job making strides forward in there. And unfortunately, it's mainly due to very hard lessons that 
we and others have learned over the years uh, of cataloging everything that you might accidentally do wrong and every way that you might ac accidentally be tricked into you know, giving your, your keys, your money to someone else. Yeah, and so maybe talk a little bit about, um, you know, really the mission behind CASA uh, and then describe some of the products you guys have built. Because I, th I think a lot of people think of it as uh, it's a company that has a product, but you guys actually have multiple products that serve different use cases. Yeah, I mean, our mantra all along has been that we are a personal sovereignty company. We are trying to build software that helps people help themselves. Uh, one of our, our employees recently started uh, trying to propagate a new thing um, where he wants us to say, uh, at CASA, we're all about holding your hands, not holding your keys. <laughs> so, um, you know, we are non-custodial. Uh, we do hold one out of a set of keys uh, for emergency recovery backup purposes. And that is mainly to, to help people who might shoot themselves in the foot be able to recover from what could otherwise be a catastrophic scenario. But our, our primary thing that we've been focused on for the past couple of years is self-custody. It's how do we take this enormous problem space of everything that could possibly go wrong if you are controlling your own private keys and build a user interface, you know, abstraction layer on top of it that makes it as easy to use as a mobile app, you know, like Facebook or whatever. So that's really what we've built is we've built a mobile app that is very easy to follow the instructions of how to set up and manage your keys. And we've gotten rid of complex things like having to actually take seed phrases and write them down and figure out how to secure them against physical loss and physical theft. And instead, we're leveraging other technology that other companies have built, these hardware devices like Trezor, Ledger, Cold Card, and so on, to actually uh, maintain the integrity of those keys. But really the most important thing that we've done is we've made multi-sig easier. And what is multi-sig? It, it basically means that in order to send your money, you have to have multiple signatures, you know, multiple uh, authorizations with cryptographic attestation that it's okay to send this money. And this is part of the Bitcoin protocol, a very standard thing. We're not rolling our own crazy setup or anything. Uh, and by having these multiple devices that are holding the multiple keys and then distributing those around different geographic areas, it gives you this level of robustness that eliminates every single point of failure. So I actually truly believe that with you know, the advent of cryptography and these devices and a properly robust architected setup, you can actually do far better than what Bitcoin has promised for many years, which is to be your own bank. I actually believe we can move beyond that. We can be better than our own bank because we can create setups that are more distributed and not prone to single points of failure like a physical bank would be. 
And so when a lot of people hear uh, secure your own keys, uh, multi-sig, like these uh, I think are scary kind of uh, what appear to be technical terminology and they're thinking, oh my God, I'm gonna have to go read like this technical guidebook and it's gonna be 500 pages and, and I'm not technical, so I just can't figure it out. You guys obviously have built something that makes that much easier, but maybe just uh, for those that don't understand, uh, what exactly is a key, right? And kind of how does that play into this? Because I think they hear a lot and they see obviously, you know, not your uh, keys, not your coin, but it's not a physical key, obviously. So maybe kind of explain that uh, a little bit as well. Yeah, you know, it's, it's not a physical key, but we've actually found that um, by taking these digital keys and, you know, getting rid of the need for people to actually manage the raw information, those seed phrases that are used to create all of the cryptographic keys, we actually pull it back into the physical realm. We say, okay, you're just keeping your keys on this device and you can very easily visualize, you know, where is this device? We actually show you know, a visualization in the app that says, you know, this is your whole set of devices and, uh, and we give you reminders to, you know, make sure you check on this one and you know, perform an integrity check so that, you know, everything is going well. Um, but ultimately, the best way to think about Bitcoin is that you're, you're not just accessing this ledger with everybody's money on it. Rather, when you're creating a Bitcoin transaction, you are creating inputs where you're, crypt you're cryptographically signing proof that you own you know, the values in the ledger. And then you're sending them to outputs. And the outputs, they have uh, scripts that are essentially locking them. It's, it says these are the conditions required in order for the money in, in this particular Bitcoin structure to be spent. And there's a million different things that you can do with the programming language. But what we're doing is very simple, which is we're creating a script that says these are the three different keys that are allowed to sign, to spend from this uh, particular Bitcoin structure. And you need two of them in order for the network to accept it. Or we also have a three out of five or a three out of six. It really depends on your level of security. And so then it, it becomes a lot easier for us to say, okay, we know that these are the devices that are necessary to co-sign a transaction. Now we just need to figure out how are we gonna distribute these devices in order to have the best you know, physical redundancy and security. Where do you go from here, right? It, it, it's, I think a lot of people would say, hey, it's really cool what you guys have built so far. Uh, when you look out over the next one to five years, like what else do you guys have ambitions to build and, and kind of what do you think is possible? So one thing that I think not many people in the space have thought through yet is inheritance. And we've spent nearly a year building out a full inheritance product and plan that actually works within the regular estate planning process. So you don't have to roll your own. That was actually something that I did back in, I think, 2015 or 2016. I went through uh, creating a last will and testament, even though I had no one really to leave it to, is I just wanted to make sure that my coins uh, didn't disappear and uh, stay locked up forever. So there's a lot of complications around that, uh, other even game theory, for example. Um, 
ultimately, we want to see Bitcoin continue to be used by more and more people. So you know, we have uh, dabbled a bit with Lightning Network. We're, I'm sure, going to see more types of payment technology come into play. Um, who knows what may end up being built on a variety of, of side chains, for example, and how, how can we plug those in. But for today, we've found that like the most important aspect to work on is helping people secure large amounts of wealth. You know, if they've ended up with a significant portion of their net worth in Bitcoin, how can we help protect that? Because if, if everybody is losing their money left and right, then that is going to erode confidence perhaps not in the fundamental protocol, but in the ability for the system itself to gain mass adoption. And we are also, in a way, competing against this looming threat of the centralized providers, where I know a lot of people are leaving their money on their exchanges simply because they feel like it's better to have it with a team of experts than to take on that responsibility for themselves. I think that this is a larger issue of us needing to start to, you know, move society in the direction of self-reliance and self-responsibility. But in order to do that, we need to lower the bar. Uh, we, we can't uh, require people to spend weeks or months learning all this technical jargon and, and thinking through all the edge cases and the security setup. So, um, there's still plenty to do there. Hopefully we don't have to learn many more hard lessons. Um, unfortunately, I think that as long as large amounts of Bitcoin are stored with third parties, there will be more hard lessons to be learned. Yeah, it's, um, it, it's really interesting, I think, because there's an ethos-driven um, kind of psychological component to this, uh, and then there's actually executing it, right? And you guys have done a, a really good job of um, putting in that position. One of the questions that I got uh, from people uh, when I asked on Twitter before we did this was, what is something that you believed in the early days that you have softened your stance on? So something that you believed, you know, very strongly and now either uh, maybe have changed your mind or, or softened your stance. Well, I was, uh, and many people often forget this, but I was actually a big blocker back in the day. Um, I, I thought that, you know, one of the premises of Bitcoin should be that transactions should be cheap. And it wasn't until I actually started working in the space and started having to run a lot of Bitcoin nodes uh, that were then being used by infrastructure uh, that I realized it's not just about the current uh, transaction throughput. It is about the aggregate you know, amount of data that the entire blockchain is storing. And if you allow that to accelerate then it becomes you know, geometrically, if not exponentially more difficult for a newcomer to come in uh, and validate the entire uh, history and be able to set up their own node and infrastructure. So one of the, the issues that I ended up having was with people who were only focused on, you know, what is the hardware that is capable with, you know, keeping up with the current volume of transactions? Like how many transactions per second can we do that the hardware can keep up with? Basically, nobody was ever thinking about, well, yeah, but how long does it take to sync from scratch? And so 
you know, that's actually one of the projects that I do on an annual basis is I resync a whole bunch of nodes, not only for Bitcoin, but also for other popular networks, just to compare to see like which ones are becoming easier to uh, audit and which ones are becoming more difficult to audit. Speaking of uh, other chains, there was, uh, I think every shit coiner and every uh, intellectually honest person in the comments of my question asking, uh, we know that he's very uh, bullish and has a deep seated belief in Bitcoin. Is there any other projects uh, in the space that uh, either one you're curious about, think are interesting, uh, or maybe even are, are uh, kind of a big believer in? Yeah, so I am, I'm interested in anything that promises better privacy. So I'm interested in things like Monero, Zcash, Grin, uh, you know, any in, insanely out there new like cryptographic primitives that people are playing around with. Uh, these are often far too experimental for us to imagine them being brought onto Bitcoin anytime soon. But um, I would say that the thing that I find least interesting are the the various networks that claim to be like infinitely scalable with free transactions. Um, I think that that is not being intellectually honest because someone has to pay for it. Ultimately, it's the infrastructure providers. Ultimately, you end up, you know, centralizing around a smaller and smaller number of them. Uh, I think a a good example of that would probably be uh, EOS, which I believe only has like a few dozen validators. And I actually tried uh, to set up an EOS validator just to see. And like, it was too difficult even for my beefy machine. So uh, it's interesting to see the trade-offs that, that certain people are willing to make. And, you know, even if you only have a few dozen uh, nodes or whatever on the network, you know, it, you can run it. It'll, it'll probably be fine, um, but the, the trade-offs are not something that I think the majority of people are, are going to be willing to accept. For sure. What do you think the biggest risk to Bitcoin adoption is? Well, that has been an easy one for a long time, and it's just simple apathy. Um, this is where it gets really complicated because there's such a diversity of people out there. And I, I actually think that, well, I might be changing my mind a little bit because of the current macro environment. But for a long time, I felt like um, trying to sell first world citizens on the idea of Bitcoin was almost a lost cause unless they were hardcore libertarian or Austrian you know, economics follower. Um, because the, the current financial system works pretty well for most people in their own perspective. Now, people with different perspectives, people in countries with hyperinflations, you don't even have to sell them on Bitcoin at all. You just tell them, you know, uh, the supply is capped at 21 million and they're sold at that point because they understand they've had to live through it. Now, the real question, which I find interesting to be happening, you know, right during this halving uh, period is how many people in the first world countries start to wake up and realize that, you know, their wealth is actually being stolen from them a little, little by little year over year. And eventually over their lifetime, it'll add up to be a significant fraction of value that has been taken from them. And I would say an even more, um, 
subversive way than taxation. It's, it's like a form of taxation that is very difficult for people to even detect because it happens over a long period of time. It, uh, I, I've said a bunch of times before that uh, the financial system is based on 50% or more not understanding how money works, <laughs> right? right? It, it's very much a, uh, you can call it a secret, right? You, I mean, you can call it whatever you want, but ultimately uh, not only is taxation, but it's taxation without people even realizing it, right? Yep. And actually the people who get hit the hardest by it, but people who live in cash definitely don't understand it, right? Um, what, um, you're a big gun nut, uh, which I appreciate uh, having grown up in, uh, in North Carolina. Uh, what is your favorite gun and why? Um, well, my favorite one that I own, which I think is quite uh, versatile and also my recommendation for home defense is a suppressed 45 caliber Chris Vector with an extended 30 round magazine. Um, this is a subsonic round, so with the suppressor on there, it's great for home defense because you aren't going to deafen yourself and potentially uh, create an even worse situation if you're not able to tell, you know, where attackers are in your house. Um, it was actually, funny story, uh, I bought it on the recommendation of John McAfee's bodyguard. So I was, I was hanging out with McAfee a few years ago on a, a sort of business-related uh, venture, and uh, I was shooting the shit with his bodyguard for a while. And, all, and we started talking guns, and you know, after 20 minutes of talking guns, he was like, oh, man, you got to get a Chris Vector. And so I did, and uh, it was some of the best firearm advice I've received. How often do you go practice? Are you, are you somebody who uh, who does a lot of drills and, and uh, goes to shoot quite a bit or, uh, or not so much? Not as often as I've wanted to lately. Uh, you know, running a company makes it a lot harder. And, and in fact, the weird thing is, that, you know, I've gotten into virtual reality over the past couple of years. And even though it's not quite the same experience it's so much more convenient for me to walk over one room and and pull up a gun range in virtual reality you know i don't have to uh pack up all of my guns and ammo schlep them over to a range fire everything and then come back and disassemble everything and clean it um so you know i, I really only get to do that every few months at this point it's also much cheaper to go do it in virtual reality right for sure um, what is, uh, your thoughts around the China hash rate? Uh, there's a lot of detractors that would say, Hey, there's so much hash rate of Bitcoin that's in China. Um, how do you kind of think through that? Yeah. I mean, it's not optimal if we're thinking about nation state level attacks. Um, but even within China, the actual mining farms are highly distributed and my understanding is a number of them are, you know, really like out in the middle of nowhere, like jungle locations, you know, basically directly plugged into a, a hydroelectric dam. So it would be an interesting thought experiment to think through, you know, how much resources would really have to be committed by the Chinese government in order to, to go in and take these things over and use them for malicious purpose. And, you know, if they did, and they would then need to do so at their own detriment. Um, you know, the, the whole point of the incentives around mining is that it's more profitable 
to go along with the network and get paid by the network than it is to attack the network. But, you know, assume China has infinite money and for whatever reason they need to kill Bitcoin. It, the worst that they could really do is either double spend the money that they already have in Bitcoin or simply perform a denial of service attack where they stop confirming transactions and then reorganize away any blocks from other miners who do confirm transactions. So with either one of those, it would be apparent to the rest of us within, you know, a matter of a few blocks. And, and so there would be essentially an emergency situation, you know, flag would go up amongst a lot of people like myself and we would come together and we would have to analyze the situation. And if we determined that it looked like it was a, you know, Chinese nation state led attack that was actually going against the incentives of the network, then we would need to figure out, you know, what is the best way to respond to this? Um, is it something that we believe would be able to go on indefinitely or should we wait it out or should we propose some sort of code change that essentially uh, neuters the existing hashing hardware? Yeah. It's crazy to go down that game theory route. We don't have time to do that today, but uh, I could talk to you about that for days and days. Uh, one of the, uh, the questions that I got that I thought was really interesting was, uh, what is your suggestion or where can you point people who uh, they bought crypto uh, on a KYC or AML exchange? Uh, they've now moved that off into a hardware wallet or a Casa device, uh, but they would like to try to reinstate some of that privacy. What's the best thing that they can look at or, or where can they go educate themselves on how to uh, reestablish some of that privacy? Yeah, so this is not the type of thing that is easy as just flipping a switch and doing it all at once uh, because there's a variety of different methods and it really comes down to do you want to uh, stay on the existing network and, and try to improve the privacy of your UTXOs, your Bitcoins on, on that network? Are you willing to uh, pay a small exchange fee to exchange to a, a more privacy uh, oriented coin and move some money around there? Um, it, I think it basically comes down to how much time are you willing to put into it? How much in fees uh, are you willing to put into it? I've played around with, for example, trying to be a uh, market maker on join market to actually get paid to mix coins. And unfortunately, um, I barely broke even with like paying for the transaction of fees. But that is one way that you can do it that will not cost you much money. The, the problem in general that I have with the various techniques that you need to improve privacy is that you have to take your coins out of cold storage. If you're doing mixing, you need to put them into some sort of mixing software like Join Market or Wasabi or uh, Samurai Dojo. And those coins need to be hot. They need to be on an internet connected device potentially for days, uh, depending on how many rounds of mixing you're doing. So you should, if you have a large amount of money, you should only be doing a little bit of it at a time and then moving those funds off to a, a new wallet, which is your, your cleanly fresh coins. Uh, otherwise, you can also you know, go out and try to find uh, one of those non-AML KYC like atomic swap exchanges. 
exchange your Bitcoin a little bit of a, at a time for something like Monero, Zcash, whatever, possibly move it around a little bit on there. And then maybe eventually you also want to atomic swap it back. But ultimately what you're trying to do is you're trying to break those links. Uh, and it's hard to do that if you're not technically sophisticated. Will that change over time? I certainly hope so, especially with like the next major upgrade that we're going to be getting uh, when we see Schnorr signatures, which will essentially allow for signature aggregation to happen. Um, that will drastically improve the privacy attributes of Bitcoin mixers. Um, and actually another thing which I'm, I'm still not quite sure about, but for example, there is the liquid uh, sidechain um, and it has a feature called confidential transactions. And it seems to me like someone should build a mixer on liquid that is a confidential transaction mixer. Uh, so I don't know why anyone wouldn't do that. Uh, maybe we just need to properly incentivize people. Three questions to end it for you. Uh, what would have to happen for you to change your mind on Bitcoin? Like what is the one or two things that could occur where you would throw your hands up and say, uh, this isn't going to play out how I thought, or uh, I no longer believe in Bitcoin? Hmm. That is tough. I mean, there are scenarios where, you know, if, if enough like government resources were put into it to try to like track down everyone who was using Bitcoin, you know, perhaps by putting uh, pressure on all the exchanges, you know, if, if it was outright banned, uh, that would certainly turn most people off to it. I think it would still continue to exist. It would still operate, uh, but probably at a much lower price because the size of the network would shrink. Um, and it would, it would be, you know, a completely different adversarial situation, uh, especially for me because I'm well known. And even though I have a great level of privacy, like the government could find me if they really wanted to. Um, otherwise, I think it's, it's unlikely that there would be a catastrophic event that was not recoverable from like even though there are many potentially catastrophic events like you know quantum computing or breaking of of important cryptographic primitives like those things would most likely be catastrophic for many other systems that are much larger than bitcoin and so that would be more of a like worldwide global catastrophe type of issue of people having bigger problems to worry about um but other than that, like I, I really, I continue to think that the most likely way for Bitcoin to die is through apathy. And, you know, if it stagnates for years on end and, you know, people stop contributing to it, stop trying to make it better, that's when it becomes a lot less interesting is that if I, I look at this thing as, you know, the open source collaborative project for money, then the most important thing that we can continue to do is to con continue to improve it so that it becomes better and better option than the existing fiat system. Let's hope we never see any of those things happen. <laughs> uh, what, uh, what's the most important book you've ever read? Oh, 
I mean, we have a few that are required reading at CASA, and one of them is The Sovereign Individual. And I, I continue to think that it's quite prescient. And uh, I, I see it happening in the news, you know, all the time, uh, where it, it seems like we're in the days right now where you basically have to be a billionaire to be a sovereign individual and have, you know, the nation state level sway, you know, you're at the point where you can negotiate with nation states essentially on a, an, a fairly level playing field. But I, I do continue to believe that technology and you know, the power that cryptography gives to people will continue to lower that bar. That would be a, a fantastic world to live in. I really, really hope you're right there. Uh, last question before you get to ask me one to finish up. Uh, aliens, believer or non-believer? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's uh, statistically, practically guaranteed. Why? Well, you know, it's hard to even hold the numbers in your head. But um, the... The, the sheer number of, of possibilities and, and number of other ecosystems out there that are similar to ours and thus likely have life. Uh, it, it's just, you know, with, if it's kind of like mining, right? Is if you try enough times, eventually you'll find that impossible number to find. And so I think you'll find the impossibly uh, right mixture of chemicals and other uh, uh, elements required to create life. It's scary to think about how big the universe is, just the universe, right? Like, and then you get into other galaxies and, and kind of the infinity type stuff. And it's just like, Jesus, what the, like, I don't know. It makes your stomach drop sometimes to think about it. What, um, what one question do you have for me to, uh, to finish this up? Uh, Good question. So am I correct? Is your, is your background in marketing? Uh, no. Like growth. Yeah. Growth, growth stuff for sure. Um, I, uh, I ran a, a couple of growth teams at, uh, at Facebook and, uh, and Snapchat. Okay. So would you, would you say that you're applying your same type of growth mindset to Bitcoin? Um, to some degree, I would say, uh, so two things that um, I think are true. One, uh, the beauty of money is it's one of the most viral products in the world, right? And uh, if I want to send somebody Bitcoin, I pull them into the network if they're not already there, right? And, and so that ends up being um, a very similar tactic to what a lot of companies try to create with virality. Uh, money just inherently has that. Uh, and then two is um, education is always a big thing. Awareness is a big thing, right? And there's no bigger awareness or education campaign uh, than what's going on right now in the macro environment, right? I mean, you know, I, I love the saying of like the Federal Reserve running a $2 trillion marketing campaign for Bitcoin, right? Um, and, and so I think a lot of that stuff um, looks very similar to how a company would set up marketing and virality, uh, referrals, all that kind of stuff, uh, obviously, but it's a decentralized system that nobody's, you know, kind of coordinating resources to do that. Uh, the second piece of it is um, that I really think about 
the growth things that we did uh, and kind of how can I individually participate. Um, and one of those things is around pulling people from uh, other communities or audiences into Bitcoin, right? And so uh, one of the things I did about, uh, I don't know, maybe six months ago or so, I decided, hey, I'm going to change the name on uh, a lot of what I was doing to be less Bitcoin or crypto specific uh, and do more of a, like, I want to talk to interesting people. I want to write about things other than just Bitcoin. Uh, and there was questions in the beginning of like, hey, are you like abandoning Bitcoin or like, do you, do you not believe in it anymore? And when it says no, actually it's the exact opposite. Like I believe in it more today than I ever have. But I also know that if I was to approach, so take the podcast, for example, if I was to approach somebody and say, do you want to come on my crypto podcast? There's a lot of people who say yes, but there's even more people who would say no. Yeah. If instead I say, hey, uh, do you want to come on this podcast that has a bunch of other smart, successful people that you admire? Uh, and one of the questions maybe about Bitcoin, not as big of a deal, right? They're much more open to that. Um, so that's been interesting. And then the other thing is on, on like the investing side, uh, that entire business, like we've always looked at it as where's the intersection of like traditional technology infrastructure and this world, right? So obviously uh, we've got a pretty significant position in Bitcoin itself, uh, in the funds, but also like what are all the things that need to be built in and around to make this viable, right? And, and um, I think that there's a lot of opportunities there. Uh, and so it's, you're kind of providing growth uh, with capital, um, but, but ultimately, I, you know, I tell every one of our founders, like they're doing the hard work right? It, it's, uh, you know, they're the ones who actually have to solve the technical problems. They're the ones who have to recruit and retain employees. They're the ones who have to actually scale the businesses, uh, get contracts signed, kind of do all that stuff. And, you know, look, some of it is, uh, it's going to be hard no matter what industry you're operating in as an entrepreneur, but some of this stuff is very kind of specific, whether it's regulatory or otherwise, um, that just makes it harder in this space, I think. So final related question, since I believe you're the originator or at least popularized the meme of the virus is spreading. Is Bitcoin the virus or is it the vaccine? So uh, I don't actually remember why I originally tweeted that. And I think it was kind of like a throwaway comment at first. Yeah. And for whatever reason, like people like latched onto it. So I was, I was like, oh, yeah, like feedback loop. Cool. I'll tweet that again. Right. And the next thing you know, I, I tweeted it a bunch of times. Um, for obvious reasons, that phrase has been retired uh, for the time being. Uh, I, I uh, was recently asked, do I think it has to be retired forever or can it make a comeback? Mm. Probably retired forever, yeah. um, uh, at least for the foreseeable future. Uh, but, but I think that, you know, um, I didn't know this. I think it was Marco Santori actually told me this. Uh, in the early days of Bitcoin, like 2011 to 13, uh, there was this uh, comment around like a mind virus. Right. And so when I, when I first started saying it, I was thinking more like virality, right. Kind of yeah. the way a virus spreads. Uh, he said that actually people had used the terminology mind virus, which I thought was uh, pretty applicable. Um, but that's how kind of like offensively it spreads through the world. I think to your point, like when you look at it as, as a solution, it's definitely the vaccine. Right. Yeah. And, and, uh, and, and it can be both. It can be everything. Yeah. And, and I think that's part of like people who don't, haven't spent a lot of time thinking about this. They, they're kind of like, what do you guys mean it could be everything? Like, you know, how, how, how come uh, you can apply Bitcoin to all things? And uh, Marty Bent has a great way of uh, putting it. He's like, look, if you fix the money, you can fix the world, right? And I, and I just think like that phrase really um, 
explains a lot of why it's so important um, to the global economy, but also to kind of everybody's individual lives and, and lifestyles. And so it's a, it's a pretty important, you know, thing to work on. Uh, I think people like yourself and, and others who, you know, are actually technically helping build it. Uh, I always say like, you're the most important people out there. Uh, and also probably um, if Bitcoin was to fail, I actually go with like somehow there's a self-inflicted wound like something gets pushed or there's some issue, whatever. I don't think there's a high likelihood of it happening. But to me, like that's actually the, the most likely thing because I generally think Bitcoiners are going to solve the problems that they're presented with, right? And kind of keep going. Where, uh, where, where can we send people? Where, where do you want to send them uh, either to find you online or, uh, or learn more about CASA? Yeah, uh, so CASA very easy, just keys.casa, keys.casa will take you to our site with all of our uh, security related material. And uh, as for myself, my site is lop.net. And you can find my Twitter, my articles I've written, um, and all of my 550 or so educational resource links. <laughs> I will give you uh, a major, major vote of um, approval in that your, well, I think it's lop.net slash Bitcoin. Yeah. Uh, I send people there all the time. It is by far the most robust uh, resource page, I think, on the internet. So uh, uh, Bitcoin.page will take you directly there if that's easier for people to remember. Whatever you're doing, keep updating that because that uh, when people say, how do I learn about Bitcoin? I send them there and I'm always scared like I'm going to overwhelm them, but I just warn them like, listen, just work your way through these links and, uh, and you'll be a, uh, an expert in no time. Start at the top. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, listen, James, I really appreciate you doing this. Um, we'll, uh, we'll link to uh, Casa. I think people should go and, uh, and check it out. And uh, for everybody, I just appreciate all the, uh, the work that you've done because uh, you are one of uh, the most important people helping build, uh, build this future world that we all want. My pleasure. I'm here to help. Happy having. All right, guys, I really appreciate you listening to that episode. I loved it. And hopefully you found it valuable. Before I let you go, don't forget to go and subscribe on your favorite podcast channel to this podcast. Leave a review. Leave five stars. Help me get more people listening to all this great information. If you also want, we publish these on YouTube in video format. You can just search my name, Anthony Pompliano, on YouTube and find the channel. Subscribe there. I hope you guys are enjoying all this. I'm loving making it. And so we will see you on the next episode.